ora, g'day. I am Dr. Elise Dowden, and I am the founder of the Australasian Post-Humanities. Thanks for listening. The Australasian Post-Humanities is a digital network of thinkers holding space across disciplines, time zones, and travel bans. We exist to make the humanities radically accessible, and you can find out more at aposthumanities.org. This series is organised on the lands of the Bunurung and Wurundjeri peoples, and sovereignty was never ceded. Paying respects to elders past and present, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Dr Matt Sharp is an Associate Professor of Philosophy at Deakin, with a vast array of research interests from Stoic philosophy to Zizek to the return of the far right to Voltaire to Camus. His academia.edu pages a testament to his utterly prolific publishing ability and many of you have likely read his work over on The Conversation. But today we're here to talk about his recent research into the current state of higher education in Australia in comparison with the German system. Matt recently completed an MA in Public Policy at the University of Tasmania entitled Serving Two Masters, Marketization of Higher Education, a Critical and Comparative Study. I was really struck by the news reports that were coming out of Deutsche Welle and, and the German outlets about how well the German university systems, at least initially, uh, responded. Um, I'm thinking about March, April, May, June last year, where, of course, everyone here will know that the higher education sector in Australia was just kind of greeted by bad news after bad news after bad news. So I sort of had to tack the thesis around um, and I made it a comparative study, historical and contemporary. So, yeah, happy to, to chat about it. I mean, it's a lot of work and, as I say, it's close to all our hearts, I think. So, so yeah, I guess we'll start by making a little map of the landscape there. Yeah, you mentioned like early 2020, Australian universities started to hit panic buttons, but the German universities were, were predicting gains. Can you begin by mapping out some of the historic landscape of higher education structures in Australia? The big one that everyone will, will talk about, and, and rightly so, is of course the, the Dawkins reforms, um, end of the 1980s, beginning of the 1990s. Before that time, um, Australia's university system had obviously developed in particular from the Menzies years through to through the, the Hawke government under Menzies and Whitlam uh, as a kind of two-tier system. Um, student numbers were growing, but by contemporary standards, they were still surprisingly low, like about a quarter of a million Australians, I think, even after the Whitlam reforms were, were in higher education. And then uh, towards the middle of the 1980s, the Liberal Party in particular began to um, fund think tank research into uh, university reform, you know, concordant with obviously similar research and policy, um, I guess, settings and directions around the world from, I guess, broadly market-oriented uh, think tanks. The first of those reports, I think, was called the Gilbert Report, um, and that was like 87, 88, and that set the tone for what the Dawkins uh, reforms, in fact, instituted in terms of the importation of um, the language of the marketplace into higher education. So higher education um, considered as a kind of industry in the development of human capital and also, interestingly, already as a potential export to Southeast Asia. And then, yeah, the Dawkins reforms took up many of the recommendations from that report. And obviously, as I say, there's kind of the international thing going on at that time associated with neoliberalism. And many of the reforms that um, were part of the, 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 the Dawkins package were also reforms that were, were undertaken elsewhere. So there was a collapsing of the distinction between um, adult education, the CAEs, um, now the TAFEs, um, and the university sector. Um, so the distinction between a, a university that might have, I guess, functions that are more than vocational and institutions that were explicitly set up to be vocational and as, as an alternative to higher education in the university sector, that distinction was for administrative purposes um, reduced. And I mean, the main thing that continues to, to shape um, the uh, Australian university life was uh, the withdrawal of discretionary or block funding from universities. So previously there'd been a, a kind of fiduciary relationship um, which was predicated on uh, a sense that the, the universities should manage themselves. It's kind of closer to a German Humboldt model. So the government would give them allocations of funding and trust that the experts would um, know what was best to do with it. And um, neoliberal criticisms of, of, of this form of, um, of governance in the university sector 
as in other sectors, was that experts can't be trusted to do more than to, in a sense, feather their own nests if they're, if they're not held accountable in one form or another. And the principal way to make them accountable and to make them efficient is to, um, to subject them to private sector style um, organisational patterns and to incentivise the whole thing by withdrawing discretionary funding and, and making money subject to um, achieving certain performance goals. So um, you withdraw money um, from, from the universities directly and then you, for example, create the ARC and you create large bundles of money that need to be competed for by academics. Um, and it's with the Dawkins reforms that um, these kinds of funding cuts um, in terms of, uh, the ability of the universities to kind of manage themselves in relative freedom from uh, what's called the evaluative state in a lot of the literature, you know, the state that's constantly evaluating their performance according to um, metrics and measures that maybe they haven't even generated by themselves, but have been generated for them by accountants and other, um, other kind of experts. So that's kind of where we're at, obviously, when coronavirus came along. Um, and, you know, one of the, the, the big differences between Australia and, and, and Germany, I mean, is German students themselves don't have to pay for a higher education degree and nor do the international students. So although the German system has quite a large number of um, international students, they're not financially dependent upon that income. And obviously what coronavirus was able to spectacularly highlight was the really internationally very high um, dependency that the Australian system had developed, having, um, you know, the need to, 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 to finance itself um, on uh, international students. And of course, with coronavirus and the closing of borders, that continues to have massive effects in terms of job losses that we've already seen and, and uh, almost certainly job losses that we're going to see um, this year. Um, you said something before about the how the accountants were doing the evaluation sort of stuff. I think that kind of leads into the next question, which is following Enders. In, in the thesis, you talk about seven major functions of universities. What are those functions and how do you see Australian universities delivering on them? I mean, one of the things that I think that, that this crisis that we're in, I, as a sector in Australia really reflects is, is a kind of confusion really about what the university is for. Uh, and so that was one of the things I was particularly keen to kind of look into in the literature, what were the different, you know, historical understandings uh, of what, what it is that we're doing when we're in a university. And um, this article by um, Enders, E-N-D-E-R-S, um, which I've, I've slightly adapted, it's a 2004 article um, he describes modern universities as multi-purpose and multi-product institutions. And building from that, I, I worked in the research with an idea that there are seven functions. So there's a cultural role in the preservation and transmission of, of social traditions and obviously different ideologies. Secondly, there's an elite forming role, uh, educating future leaders in public and private sectors. Thirdly, you've got a vocational training role, which, which was there pretty early in the Australian um, universities alongside uh, the, other, the other roles. So this is, you know, upskilling technical manufacturing, engineering and service workers. You've got a social role um, in fostering social development and also particularly in the mid, middle century, mid, mid century and, and still today, I think to some extent, facilitating economic mobility um, you know, the great Australian dream, if you like, of, of you know, first generation students going to university and upskilling and up educating themselves and, and being able to, to move into more lucrative and prestigious professions. And then we get these last three, which are, I think a little different. So you've got the fifth, I've called a human, humanistic and democratic role in informing the minds and shaping the characters of younger generations of citizens. Then you've got a pure research function, number six, and then an applied research function. And I guess my, my main argument, or at least my main hypothesis, which, which I sort of explored, particularly number five, the humanistic and democratic role of informing the minds and shaping the characters of young generations of citizens has progressively been crowded out uh, under the, the new dispensation. Um, and some of the other functions have obviously continued more or less um, uh, you know, untouched, like the elite forming role, for example. Um, I think the social role, as I've mentioned, is still there. And that's 
you know, probably one of the more positive things that we can continue to say about higher education is that it, it, it does still provide, insofar as it remains relatively inexpensive, um, so long as we still have something like HEX, um, the possibility of social mobility. Obviously, the vocational training role has kind of obviously been vamped up in a sense. Um, but the pure research function and the humanistic and democratic function, and I, I think also the cultural role of the universities as kind of the, the preservers of and transmitters of social traditions um, and ideologies, that's also, I think, um, in jeopardy in terms of a kind of a, a reconception of the university as, as, as a kind of business or businesses, which we can perhaps talk about. And that's obviously the main, main idea of marketization is that universities are, are in a sense, um, they're businesses um, and they need to survive and they need to compete and they're delivering a product and they've got a market share and, and, and that way of thinking about it. Yeah. Which is really quite foreign to public policy documents before the 1980s about higher education, including in Australia. That ties in really well with the marketization stuff and like the way that the university is carrying on an ideology rooted in neoliberal stuff. Yeah, so on that note, what is marketization and how does it relate to new public management structures? So in the public policy literature that I looked at, marketization is, is, is a way of governing, basically. It's about a, a transformed conception of the state and its relationship to, to governing and therefore to the citizens or if they're even to be called citizens anymore if you like as against consumers characterized as people here will know by you know different features such as privatization of public assets including their sale in some case cases the creation of what are sometimes called quasi markets um so you know we've got a kind of classic example of that in australia with um the way that uh, unemployment benefits are now delivered um, as against being um, sort of delivered by the government directly, there's now a kind of a marketplace that's been set up between providers who, who take on government contracts um, and that are given performance targets by the government in terms of number of jobs um, found and so on in, in any given time period. And then they need to periodically recontract with the government. Um, and so, you know, you've got church providers uh, for example, who who are competing with with other other private bodies whose whose business it is to to find people jobs, um, and then I guess the the third feature, which is probably most relevant for the universities in some ways, is what's called new public management, um, which is the idea that uh, if you want to run anything efficiently, you should run it like a business and like a private um, company or corporation, um, and then in order to do that, you need to um, kind of drive competition into every nook and cranny that you can. So, you, you know, you need to get, if you want an academic to perform as best as possible, you need to make him or her compete with his or her fellows. If you want a discipline to, to be successful or efficient, whatever that might mean, the best way to do it is, is to put it in, into competition with other disciplines and you can kind of do it at different levels. Um, you can do it between faculties, you can do it certainly between universities, you can do it between national systems. But the trick is that you've got to work out um, commensurable kind of um, quantifiable measures that are going to um, enable things to be commodified. So you can get that sense of people competing for the same things on the same, on the same level, if you like. And, you know, the big problem with the universities from, from the perspective of new public management is that it's really hard to, to quantify the value of an article on Giorgio Agamben or, um, you know, an article on particle physics or, you know, an article on Henry VIII's um, economic reforms or something like this. So, you know, the search, search was on from the 1980s and 1990s. If you're going to do this, how are you going to... How are you going to, for example, make research more efficient in a way that's quantifiable and that will enable ranking? Um, and, and then that ranking can, of course, be then used um, to, um, to kind of hook into reward systems. So you can create... So in Germany, for example, there's the Excellence Initiative, which was created in the early 2000s. And the Excellence Initiative is, is a system whereby the German universities compete for global rankings 
and then I think it's the top 12 or something get extra government money. And that's just that's a classic example of marketization. Uh, the Excellence Initiative was based on the, the panicked government response when the, the global rankings started emerging in Germany and this country with this incredible educational um, history found that according to the global rankings, I, I, I think they had one or two institutions in the top 100 and perhaps none in the top 50. And that led um, their policymakers to, um, to, to try to devise an incentive to, um, to build Germany's um, kind of global ranking by, not by, and you can see like, if, you, if you're a social democratic kind of oriented government, you wanna kind of fund universities relatively equitably because you want everybody from every part of your country to go to the same quality of, of universities. This, then that was the German policy up to that time. And then with the excellence initiative, you get, no, there's a two tier, we need to create a two tier system. So we've got five or six in the top 50 with the idea that, you know, I guess that then you, you, you attract, you attract research monies, you attract international students, you attract, you know, prestige. And it, so you have that contradiction, if you like, between, you know, often the economization of universities, I think, is often sold somewhat disingenuously as a kind of democratizing project. I think we see here clearly how it actually pushes against democratization at this level because every, everyone's being ranked and um, and the rankings are tied to incentives and rewards and to he who has more is given. And so rather than having a, you know, a robust system, which is geographically equitable, you have a system where you've got prestige institutions, you know, star academics. Yeah. That's a really thorough explanation. There's a quote in your research, I think it's in there a few times and it really struck me. I think it's by Shumway. Um, it says, because neoliberalism rejects the very idea of not-for-profit and insists that all values must be measured by the market, the humanities appear valueless. Do you want to build on that? I mean, this relates to this idea of the university's function in, in, in um, educating for, I guess, character and for national character and, and and as part of a, a project of, of nation building and, and, and cultural building, if you like, from the perspective of, of a, you know, a kind of a, a pretty hard, hard hitting kind of marketizing program, the humanities are really hard to, to understand and to justify um, insofar as obviously, I mean, we produce research papers, um, we produce theses, we produce students, we produce books, but many of those books are even critical of the marketizing process, um, they don't sell particularly well compared to uh, obviously commercial <laughs> commercial novels and, 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 and so on, or even commercially written nonfiction books. If the goal is to be producing a product that is, um, that is generating um, profit and monetary profit, then the humanities understandably um, look hard to justify because this just was never ever part of what they were conceived of as, as being about. The humanities as we have them, uh, as, as people I'm sure will know, um, have developed from the medieval university. And in the medieval university, the arts faculty was the lower faculty, which meant that everybody had to go through the humanities basically. And you would be given through the humanities, this lower faculty, the, the skills that should you want to go into the higher faculties, which were law, medicine and theology, you would be able to then apply. And so the humanities in that model, uh, and then differently, I think in the Renaissance model as well, were, were considered to be um, giving people capacities to, to reason, to think, to analyze, to write, to discuss, to talk, and to inform them in ways that you know, it didn't directly map onto any particular profession um, because they were, you know, mappable onto a wider conception of what it is to be a good Christian in the medieval world, what it is to be a, a Renaissance man in the Renaissance, what it might be to be a good citizen in, in kind of earlier democratic conceptions. You know, I, I really think that sometimes we've missed a trick in terms of just realising just the real push that marketizing language, I think, has conducted in terms of 
just kind of narrowing that language. And, and I mean, we just don't, if you look at the policy documents on higher education, you just don't see democracy being mentioned anymore. You just, you don't really see the word citizens being mentioned um, anymore. I mean, the word creativity is still kind of there and thereabouts and it's kind of making its way into the creative industries. And I think that's important that some of our colleagues are able to, to advertise their work in that way. But another word that, you know, again, I think is, is kind of, is disappearing a little bit is critical. Um, the word critical, that is, you know, the idea that, you know, you should be teaching people to be critical. Um, again, which is, um, you know, it's, it's a word that's got an august history in my discipline, going back at least to the 18th century. Um, and, you know, a critic is somebody who thinks independently uh, and judges independently um, of the world they live in and, and the products, the artistic and other products that, they, that are part of it. Um, and these just aren't really about, you know, these aren't really mappable onto even human capital discourse, you know, which is the idea that you go to university to credentialize yourself. So you become a better bet for the future. And it's less likely that the government will have to spend money on your welfare. Um, you know, the old joke about the humanities is that <laughs> it doesn't do that at all. <laughs> yeah, I saw something in New Zealand recently that said that the, um, like the dole is the best um, form of arts funding in New Zealand, so like the, the, the employment benefit is New Zealand's best arts funding. Yeah, well, that's, that's an impression that's out there. Incidentally, the, the, the figures in terms of job placements within three to five years, I, I don't believe really bear out that arts does a, a lot worse than many of our other um, faculties, but that's the image that's definitely out there and you encounter. Maybe it would be good to walk through some of the different categories for types of higher education models, um, especially with reference to the German system. In the modern period, you've got the Napoleonic system, which is the French system, um, which is less relevant, I guess, to Australia um, in some ways, which is more state-centric, um, more centralised. Um, the German model is obviously associated with Wilhelm von Humboldt, and that's probably the model that had the most effect on thinking through what a university might be like, at least on the inside, uh, including in Australia. And it sort of, it intersects with British understandings of, um, of, of the universities as well. So, I mean, the, the you know, the big feature of the Humboldt system, which is why that it's possible to kind of look back on it with some nostalgia right now, even though I think it, it, it was problematic in other ways, is, is, is the idea of collegial self-governance. So again, this is the idea that the universities are best governed by people who know what's going on from the inside. Um, and the people who know what's going on in the classroom are teachers. Uh, and the people who know what's going on in research facilities are the researchers. And so within the institution, of course, which was terribly elite in, um, in Germany, until after the Second World War, as it was everywhere else. Um, but once you got in there and once you're within that elite, um, there was a degree of collegial democratic governance. Um, and so, for example, like a rector in Germany, I believe to this day, uh, is still a, a, an elected position uh, as against an appointed position. And it's a position that you would hold for a period of time, like a kind of like a you know prime ministership or something, and you would, for those four years of your service, um, you would be given obviously a, a salary um, a commensurate to your extra tasks, but you you still, I think, still teach right, um, and you, you certainly know you're going back to being a teacher after four years. So there isn't a strong gap, if you like, between, you know, the, the teachers who are sort of slogging it out in first year classrooms and, you know, your deans and your rectors and so on, insofar as the lived experience of day-to-day -day work is going to involve class time for, for everyone. Um, and so that, that von Humboldt model, I think, is... is it's something that you know I think in Australia was 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 part of university culture um, as recently as the 1980s and early 1990s. I remember 
when I was at Melbourne University that the philosophy department, for example, where for a start there was like 15 full-time staff members at that stage, which is now larger than any faculty, any discipline of philosophy in Australia. But there were weekly meetings or fortnightly meetings anyway of, of the staff where they would conduct a business of the discipline. Um, and I, I know this because I was the, um, the grad rep and the grad rep would be invited to have a voice at those meetings. Um, and that now looks like another world um, just because of the way things have, have, have evolved, devolved, revolved. Um, I, I suspect there's probably not a discipline in Australia that any longer has that experience of collegial self-governance. And we've talked about yeah, the, the model of the marketising um, universities, obviously the one that we're probably in at the moment. And the Humboldt model, as I say, was, was terribly elite uh, in terms of getting into the university. I mean, um, and getting, in, you know, getting on one of those collegial boards of self-governing um, academics. Um, I mean, not, which is not to say that it's any easier to get a job right now, it's probably harder. But the other thing that the, the von Humboldt system, um, you know, was, 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 was under strain from was the growth in numbers that occurred in university students around the world um, from the 50s and 60s. Um, you know, there really was a push to expand higher education um, after the Second World War. And, uh, you know, Humboldt was writing in the first decades of the 19th century uh, with nothing like that expansion in mind. So, as I say, I mean, we have this tendency, which is really understandable, to try and idealise the past. It was all better. Uh, and I think in all sorts of ways, um, it wasn't. Um, but there were aspects of, of that system, which, you know, I, I, I think uh, potentially things we might think about trying to revisit. <laughs> yeah, maybe we could talk about problem tendencies. Um, how do they relate to crisis tendencies um, as per the Frankfurt School? When you're mixing marketisation with higher education on a higher education, either a Napoleonic or Humboldt model, you're kind of mixing oil and water. And so I, in my research, I used a, a notion from Jürgen Habermas, the notion of crisis tendencies, which I called problem tendencies because I didn't want to um, get in trouble with my public policy uh, <laughs> supervisor. <laughs> so I sort of downplayed the Habermas and I called them problem tendencies. And these are things that happen when, when a system's actually working as it should do. And it's not like there are problems that sort of come to it from the outside. Like, I mean, obviously coronavirus is an example of a problem that's come from the outside. And, but I think it's highlighted problems that were within the system. And so when I was talking about problem tendencies, I was thinking of Habermas's notion of crisis tendencies, which are basically problems that emerge when a system's working just as it should do. Um, and I, I, basically my argument is that within teaching, within research and within institutional cultures, um, kind of driving marketization into the higher education system has necessarily produced tensions um, and competing values. So um, to, I'll give you, a, I'll use the example of teaching, for example. Generally speaking, it's understood that qual the quality of instruction that a, a teacher is able to give to a pupil or pupils will be more or less dependent upon the time um, and direct engagement and energy that the teacher is able to give to those students. Of course, there'll be variations across disciplines, variations between instructors. Um, and, you know, if, if someone's just kind of a bad teacher, more time's not gonna necessarily help them instruct a student. But generally speaking, um, quality is in some sense dependent upon the time and energy we're able to give to our students. Now, that pushes against um, the language of efficiency language of efficiency would tell you that if you can have one teacher teaching 30 students or one teacher teaching 20 students, um, the cost is going to be per head less if you've got one teacher teaching 30 students. Um, so you've got a fairly basic uh, tension there between the traditional demands of pedagogy, which um, seem to point towards, um, you know, intensive teaching quality, um, as against um, the language of efficiency, um, 
which pushes towards higher student to staff ratios. Um, again, so the level of how students are asked, invited to think about themselves under the new dispensation, the, the language of, of policy documents and so on, thinks of students more or less as consumers or clients and teachers then become service or product providers. Um, now the assumption is that to be a student is to receive um, a good from a, a service or product provider. And those of us who have been teaching for different periods of time will probably realize that that seems like a pretty flat model to describe what's going on in a classroom. And it's even perhaps a deceptive model. Um, so the assumption is that, it's, that we can describe studentship as like being a consumer or client. And, you know, the business of being a teacher, being a pedagogical authority, challenging your students, inspiring your students, um, doing all the things that, you know, you should do in a classroom, whether that's delivering a service, like, you know, my pouring water from one glass into another glass, it's, it's, um, it causes issues. Um, for example, if I'm evaluated as a product provider, a service provider, I'm getting feedback from students at the end of the term, which will often be quantified and I wanna get high feedback numbers. So I can think to myself now, how am I gonna get high feedback numbers? If I mark students maybe harder because I wanna try and test them and challenge them to do better, am I likely to please them more and get better um, re results? Or will, that, will I be better served to perhaps mark them on the easier side? I think it's, understandable it's human nature to to for students who um are being encouraged to think about themselves as receiving a product in particular to want to get you know good marks um, and they might well respond more favorably to teachers who give them higher marks you know this can really lead to problems when you've got issues around passing students um because if you don't pass a student that's a big financial cost for the student you know, so there are pressures associated with, with this model that are put, put on instructors to perhaps, um, you know, um, mark in different ways than they might do. And the other big one here at the level of teaching, I think problem tendencies, when you, when you, when you think about staff-student ratios and so on, is, is, is the economies of, of casualization. Um, if you can pay a full-time professor 150 a year to teach three classes, or you can pay a casual to teach those three classes and pay them 30 grand because you're paying them by the hour, although the hourly figures will look good. Um, when they're not on the clock, they're not on the clock. Then, you know, it becomes efficient from, from that perspective. But again, you know, from the perspective of the student, maybe the, the casual teacher is under a lot of time pressure. Maybe they're stressed out. Maybe their existence is relatively precarious. Maybe they've only been doing it for two or three years and maybe sometimes it is good to have more senior staff members delivering classes directly because they've been doing it for 30 years. Um, and just by the sheer mathematics of that, they're gonna know more about the discipline. So they're the kinds of things I was referring to as problem tendencies, um, where you've got a system that's kind of setting up a series of, I guess, measures, incentives, rankings that are pushing against in this case, I think quality of classroom teaching and the ability to kind of, as a teacher, give the time and the energy to the students that maybe previous generations of students were able to, to receive. Yeah. And I, I argue that there's, there's different problem tendencies at the level of, of research in terms of trying to measure and compare research. Um, and also at the level of what I call um, institutional culture so the tension between promoting competition everywhere and the language of collegiality, which kind of survives. Um, and, you know, academics still have elements of a kind of gift economy, you know, we still basically mark theses for next to nothing, for example. Um, we review articles for next to nothing. Um, and these are kind of throwbacks from a, a kind of gift economy that was part of a collegial culture that's not consistent with, you know, being in competition with, with everybody. Um, and the other thing I just quickly mentioned, because I think people will 
recognise this. I call it second orderism because we're being evaluated um, for our first order of research and teaching activities, and, and we're, into, we're, we're, we're being asked more and more to spend time repackaging what we do for the purpose of administrative and managerial consumption and understanding. So obviously writing grant applications, um, submitting our work to forms of quantification and performance management and so on. And so the paradox of the neoliberal kind of moment in the, uh, in the university, like in a lot of other public services is that, you know, neoliberalism was sold as a kind of diminishment of the, diminution of the state and so on. But in fact, we've got, in Australia in particular, we've, we've had consistent rises in the number of, and, uh, of administrative staff relative to students and relative to academic staff. And therefore, of course, the proportion of administrative staff in the Australian universities for at least a decade has been over 50%, uh, which it never was before. And which looks ironic given the small state rhetoric that neoliberalism is famous for. Mm, man, that's really high. That's higher than I thought. I don't think I know a single casual who thinks that they're being paid fairly for the amount of hours they put in or like doesn't have an ethical quandary with like how much work should I put into the teaching and how much do I owe to my students given how much I'm being paid, how much time I can afford to spend, etc. So we've already covered a little bit of our next question, but it's about how the casualization of teaching and faculty control over university governance corresponds with a rise in VC salaries. So I've got some stats here. In the year 2000 in Australia, there were 34,000 non-academic full-time staff and 27,000 um, academics. So there was already, actually 2000, there was already more non-academics and academics. By 2017, that had become 51,000 non-academics and 39,000 academics. So we've got a 49% increase of non-academic as against a 43% in that time um, change. Um, so you see that, that those proportions changing in terms of administrative, non-administrative. In terms of casualization, I mean, people here will probably be familiar with the quite um, the striking dimensions of casualization in Australia relative to um, to other places. I, I was using heavily, of course, a, a Grattan report uh, from 2018, which was just before the crisis, which is actually really interesting to read because it was it's a glowing report on the health of the sector, and they, of course, like everybody else, they had no idea about um, about what was coming around the corner. Um, but even so, even you know, in the context of that really glowing report um, on just how healthy the Australian sector allegedly was, there are striking figures about um, casualisation. Look, I mean, I won't, I won't do much more than just cite some figures from 2019 for VC salaries and give you a comparison of some German salaries. So Glyn Davis at the University of Melbourne was on $1.6 million in 2019 before coronavirus. Michael Spence at the University of Sydney was on 1528000 more or less. Ian Jacobs at the University of USW was just shy of $1.3 million. Um, Peter Hodge at the University of Queensland was on exactly one2 Jane Den Hollander at Deakin, um, where I'm from, was on 1.109, 1.110, and so on. So you get, you get a sense. I mean... A professor's salary is about 180 to 200, I think. So you've got a factor of five or six or even more between the most senior academic staff and the kind of the managerial elite. Now, this is um, something that, you know, would, if it, to the extent that a justification is given for it, um, would be it would be a market on, on the basis of you know markets and attracting people and so on. It nevertheless remains that these figures are, are are very very high internationally relative to even places like America and the United Kingdom where VC salaries are very very high. Yeah, it's so, so as, much money. <laughs> it's a lot of money. But um, so as of two thousand and six, by contrast, German vice chancellors received. Um, for the period of their tenure, an extra 160 euros per month. So what's that over 12 months? They're going to be getting, you know, a few grand more for being a VC. Deans were getting an extra 80 euros per month as against just being a prof or whatever. 
Um, I had a look at some recent advertisements for Germany university presidents. I think my wife thought that I was planning a change. Um, and again, they're, they're really quite low. They're in the 200s, 200 euros. So, so that might be 400,000 Australian. Yeah, but comparatively, like. Comparatively, that's right. Um, and when you do have these high numbers of casual staff who are on, I, I, I mean, my estimate would be you can make about you can make about thirty grand, maybe if you if you really work your absolute hide off, you could probably make forty as a as a casual academic, and and you'd be really really pushing hard because you'd probably be doing four or five subjects. So I mean, to get one point six million out, of, let's say it's forty grand per casual, we're talking what? We've got forty staff members equivalent to one VC, and you know, at the risk of being dubbed, you know, um, tall poppy, I. I, I think not a lot of Australians would be aware of this kind of differential. And I reckon there'd be a, a, a we could have a really good debate about whether, um, you know, unless, you know, what could possibly be, um, be vindicating this um, on, on a kind of um, a measure that people might accept. Now, there'll be arguments, of course. Um, no, it seems internationally unusual it seems very inequitable given the experience of casual staff that we all know because um, either we've been one or are one or are employing one um, or more mm. and often they're struggling to meet rent um, yeah okay, so the abs say that we uh, um, abs statistics suggest within australian university overall proportion of casuals in the workforce in 1990, okay, in the Australian universities was 8%, okay. So in, in 1990, right, we've got 8% casuals in the university sector. By 1996, this is 14%. And then jump a decade and we're at, we're at 17. And then oh, it's crazy then, right, by mid 2018, jumping another decade, according to the Grattan Institute, we've got 94,500 casuals, which is 47% of total full-time equivalent staff. And as Tim's pointed out, predominantly these are teaching only academic roles. So to put that in perspective, at that time, 55,000 permanent or fixed time contract staff had academic job classifications in Australian higher education. So there's well, there's nearly twice as many casual academics in the sector. There's 55,000 versus 95,000 in 2018. That's huge jumps, eh? 8% to, yeah, that's huge. It's higher definitely up. massive, yeah, it's a big, it's a big shift, right? It's a new economy, it's a new, new way of doing higher education. How, in your view, could universities do better to produce critical citizens through public or university policy? That's a bit of a curly one, but. I mean, there's, there's, obviously there's ideals that we can think about. There's, you know, if I was like God or an autocrat, what could I do? And then there's what might actually happen. Um, and I mean, I think both are important exercises, but the first one is in a way pointless. Um, I, my concern is that it seems to me that universities and the framing of universities has increasingly become downstream of where policy is being made and where policy is being discussed. And with the withdrawal of the, I guess, tradition transmitting function of the university, um, that what's taking, it, taking its place is of course the media in terms of, you know, what's, what, what's, what it is to be Australian, what it is to, to live in a, in a good society and so on and so forth. Um, and the discourse that's out there in a lot of the media, obviously, particularly the Murdoch media, which has been very hostile, especially the humanities since the 1980s and 1990s, uh, is very negative um, and to the extent that the university's talked about it, it is talked about in largely vocational and economistic terms. Um, so I think in terms of what might be practical, I, I, I think um, we would need to change the terms of the public debate because the space for the humanities I think is downstream from larger cultural debates. I mean, we can try and, and of course we should, we should fight for every job and so on. And we should use the language of creativity and, and all the languages that are sort of being used in terms of trying to keep the humanities as part of things. Um, but at some point, I think we have to recognise that, you know, the humanities really are about creating 
better people, smarter people, better educated people, uh, more cultured people, and and uh, you know a more more educated and informed public space. So I'll just quote. I mean, I just I love quoting this this Murray report, which is like from the 19, 1957. It really gives a sense of just how far we've come. So. <clears throat> Under Menzies in 1957, um, a committee was put together under this guy, um, William Murray, who produced a report on the Australian universities. And I mean, some of this language is quaint and potentially colonial and, and, and problematic, but it's so distant from what we're doing right now. So universities are advertised to the government, this is to Menzies government as, a, as purveyors of civilization. Um, and they're also advertised as places in which um, knowledge intoxicated men, so they're men, right? So um, that's, that's important to note. But knowledge intoxicated men should pursue their disciplines in relative insulation from the pressures of the government and economy. This should include the humanities and the social sciences. And it was understood that insulating the disciplines from public pressures would ensure the objectivity of knowledge. And the report then goes on to advocate for federal responsibility for university funding because federal centralization was only being undertaken at this point. They were pre universities were previously almost exclusively the, the, the function, uh, sorry, the, the products of state governance and so on. So the argument of the report um, was that universities were necessary for Australian liberal democracy as a means to provide a buffer of independent knowledge and counsel, um, which would enable demo democratic culture to be protected against forms of like what we would call demagogic populism. And the report says that there is a concern, a permanent concern, and remember they're just, they're fighting Soviet, Soviet Russia and they just finished fighting the Germans, um, that without um, such an institution, quote unquote, electorates, baser emotions and potential for self-delusion or deceit by another nation will be um, greatly increased. So that there it is again. So the university has a function in preventing public debate and therefore government by election being captured by politicians who appeal to electorates, baser emotions and potential for self-delusion or deceit by another nation. Yeah, obviously, for those of us who aren't already Trumpists, um, it's hard not to think of that description as a kind of prescient description of um, what's gone on in the, in the United States and what continues potentially to go on. Um, yeah. So I don't know whether I don't know whether that's an answer in terms of practicalities. I mean, I my 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 I'm I'm, I'm pessimistic. I have to say, I, I think that short of the kind of systemic change that would lead to debate higher up about what is a society for and why might we want to have universities, I find it very difficult to see that the spell of marketization can be broken. I hope, I hope that I'm wrong because I'm in the humanities and I'm, I'm a philosopher and, and um, you know, we, we don't fare very well under, under this, this, this regimen, which is one reason why I've also done an MA in public policy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very pragmatic. <laughs> Just in case, you know, I got a mortgage. The Australasian Post-Humanities is a digital network of thinkers holding space across disciplines, time zones and travel bands. We exist to make the humanities radically accessible, running digital reading groups, seminars and events across Australasia and beyond. Come join a reading group, apply to do your own presentation, grab free tickets to live seminars, or check out more of what we do at aposthumanities.org. Thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. <laughs>